You're listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. In this week's lesson, The Principles, Philip Edwards will add two more traditions this week, the holiness and the charismatic tradition. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please head on over to ariseministry.org.uk where you can see future modules, the other ministries we have to offer and also make a secure online donation. You can also now follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. And now, over to Philip Edwards for today's teaching. Good evening. Uh, To week two of the traditions of the Christian faith. Let's pray uh, before we start. Heavenly Father, we just commit ourselves to you to learn more about you, for you to speak uh, into our spirits, to make things clearer, and uh, this spiritual world that we live in more and more real to us. Father, we commit ourselves now to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week I introduced this subject, the traditions of the Christian faith. I'm going to just do a very quick uh, recap in case you weren't here or uh, you missed the first week. The Christian faith has been handed down to us over 2,000 years. That's why it's called to some extent the traditions. A tradition is something that is handed down. I think it's obvious to see that we all haven't got the complete picture of it because we look around and we see different denominations who emphasize certain things or believe things slightly different from us and so but we in our denomination or in the stream that we find ourselves we're quite comfortable with the way that we worship God or our traditions but we would be foolish to say, oh, we've got all the truth and some of these people must be wrong, uh, or for them to say similar things. So it seems that there's a lot and we simply have just some of it. The reason being because really we've sat under ministries or ministers and because they've faithfully taught us what they know and believe, but if they didn't know everything or preach everything or practice everything, then we would only have what they preached and practiced. Well, that's sensible. The denominations, as you look at them and uh, discover what it, the emphasis that they have, there's whole things that they have left out regarding the life of Christ. Also, uh, the library of books that you read, uh, how broad is that? Or do you keep reading the same sort of authors, all the authors that support your ideas and thoughts rather than going somewhere else? We're looking at Christ. Christ is the Christian faith. If Christ didn't do it or think it or say it, we shouldn't be looking at it or thinking and saying it. But we should look at all of his life. And this is what I want to do in this uh, series that we're doing. If we look at different churches, like I say, you go into a Pentecostal church, it's quite different from going into an Anglican church. Sometimes they get very close, don't they? But sometimes they seem to be miles apart. You walk into a Baptist church, then you walk into a Catholic church, you're thinking, is this the same religion? Very strange. But it is. We're all of what is called Trinitarian faith. We believe in God being three persons. They all generally believe that it is through the grace of God that we're saved, through the death of Christ. 
but then it changes. I want to look at the fullness of Christ, the fullness of his life in some of these traditions that we perhaps know about or know little about. It's obvious through the 2,000 years of church history that the Holy Spirit has visited the church uh, from time to time and brought back truths that have been neglected. Uh, somehow the church lost it, somehow, and the Spirit came to bring us back into the truth. I think he's done a pretty good job. I was saying probably the most recent one is the charismatic move of the Holy Spirit, reminding the church about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We'll be looking at this tradition uh, in the second part this evening. Last week we studied what it was to be in the contemplative tradition, that of uh, living a life of prayer, uh, fixing our gaze, our soul's gaze upon the Lord, as it were, continually. We've sort of given a name to it. We call it practicing the presence of God or living in his presence. The idea of being conscious all the time that God is there and we need to keep coming back and focusing on him. I want to do two more traditions this evening. The first is the holiness tradition. Uh, you might have heard people say, well, I, I went or I attended a holiness church. You're thinking, oh, what does that mean? Aren't I holy? I thought I was holy. What does your church uh, express then about holiness that, that I don't know about? That's the first one I want to do first. And then after the break, I say, we'll have a look at the charismatic. That's probably the one that I'm most familiar with. And uh, because that's only one of six that we're looking at. The holiness tradition then, Living a virtuous life. Often it's good to give definitions before you speak about something, so we're sure we're all speaking about the same thing, uh, because biblical words sometimes have several definitions, and often biblical words are different from the way that we use words today. So let me give you a definition of the holiness tradition or living a virtuous life. It is the reformation of our hearts so that we're able to respond appropriately to the challenges of life. Simply put, as we go through life, things challenge us. We respond to every challenge one way or another. Ignoring it is a response, okay? So we, we respond. We can respond in a holy way, a virtuous way, the way that Christ would have responded, the way that God expects us to respond, or we can respond in an unholy way, the way that perhaps we might have responded in our old nature, the way that God would not respond or Christ would not want us to respond. So holiness is about the proper response to life. You say, well, I thought holiness was something else. I said, that's the definition I'm giving it tonight, so we're all on the same sheet. The original great Greek meaning of the word holiness is simply to function well. I like that. That's nice and simple, isn't it? Holiness is to function well, to do the right thing. The virtuous life is not about being perfect. Whew, that's good, because uh, uh, that, that's ridiculous. God is not looking for perfect people. 
He doesn't expect us to be perfect. And yet sometimes when we talk about people being holy, we think about a perfection in their life. Somehow uh, we, we gain points, as it were, by, by being good and, and, and God is pleased with us. We've got to get rid of those strange ideas. That's not true. Through salvation, God's Holy Spirit entered our soul. The Holy Spirit brought with him when he came new values. We read about these in Galatians 5 and 19, 20, around there. It says, this is what the sinful flesh was like, but now you're a new born-again person and the Holy Spirit has come. He has brought a whole new set of values into your life. We call it the fruit of the Spirit. We know what they are, of course. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, uh, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. These are values now, the new values. There's the opposite of the old nature that would seek to push itself through again. Selfishness and greed and covetousness and all these things, they seek to push themselves through. But we need to make sure that these new values are in our lives and working through our lives. See, you are holy because the Holy Spirit lives in you and he's brought all the virtues. You just have to work a little bit at letting him become, as it were, ingrained in you and to flow out of your life. New Christians have to deal with this. They have to turn away from the old to embrace the new. Turn away from the sins of the flesh and enjoy the fruit of the Spirit born in their lives. It becomes ingrained in us. In Jesus, we see constantly holy habits. He just did it the right way. He just always did it the right way. Now you say, well, oh, he's God. No, he was tempted in all ways like we were, and he learned obedience like we do. So it, he could have gone the wrong way. Any time he could have chosen, but he always did what was appropriate. He always responded in that way. Jesus was always responsible. His response to everything was always appropriate. Sometimes he told people off, it was appropriate. Sometimes he said nothing, it was appropriate. Sometimes he challenged, sometimes he answered questions, sometimes he never. Everything that he said and did was appropriate, therefore holy, because he did what the Father would have wanted him to do. This is purity of heart. You're pleased about that, aren't you? Because it isn't about being perfect and holy and never saying or doing anything wrong. Purity of heart is the appropriate response then to every situation. As in each of the traditions that we're looking at over these weeks, we look at the example of Jesus. It's smashing doing this course because we're just talking and looking at Jesus all the time and really, that's really the, be the best thing to do when Christians come together. As I said, I've used that word ingrained. Ingrained, it was ingrained in him. As I thought, I thought that's a lovely word. It's like grain, we know what grain is. We see the grain goes all the way through a piece of wood. It went all the way through him. We become ingrained. Jesus was ingrained. 
What is it that draws us away into sin? To act in an unholy way. What is it that does it? It's temptation, isn't it? If we weren't tempted, then we would never sin. Because of the holy virtues within us, we would simply walk that way. But temptation comes, and that's what's leading us into sin. James hits on this in uh, 1 James. He says this, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desires he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. Without this temptation coming, we wouldn't sin. The temptation comes, then we're faced with a decision. Do I respond this way or that way? We might do this 50 times a day. When someone talks to us, uh, when something, an event happens, uh, when we're upset or disappointed, these things come. And so we're tempted to go in the wrong direction, but we have to respond appropriately. That's what Jesus did. As we study the life of Christ, we see always what his appropriate uh, approach was. So, if it's about temptation, we better go to see how Jesus dealt with his temptation. That's the big story for us. Uh, we can read about this in Matthew 4 and 11. Um, you can turn to that. I'm going to make references to it. Uh, we won't read it together, but we'll just talk. It's fairly well known to most Bible students, the temptations of Jesus. Remember, when he came out of the waters of baptism, the Spirit led him. Uh, into the wilderness or the desert, as it's often translated today. There he, uh, he fasts for 40 days. Uh, God has impressed him to fast. I wonder why. Why had God impressed on him to fast? Possibly, was it because he knew that a great temptation was coming? This would be the outset of his ministry, and it's at this point that Satan would come with a tremendous attack on his life. And is it possible that fasting maximises our spiritual resources? So oh, I don't know about that, Phil. I get very hungry and grumpy and all these things. But I think, I think it does. We don't fully understand the full virtue of fasting, but it probably somehow builds up reservoir, a spiritual reservoir within us. And I think this is what it was about. He maximised his spiritual resource in this 40-day fast. It was at that point that God then allowed Satan to come and to tempt Jesus. Satan knew who Jesus was. I think that's clear. He knew he was the Son of God. He, he could listen to prophecies and he could hear things that everyone else was saying. He, he knew clearly who he was. He might have known more than the people should have known, but there we go, he knew. He knew the mission of this coming of the Messiah was that he would be king of all the world. One day he would rule the world. It was clear in Daniel, it's in the, in the visions of Daniel, where you know this great big stone comes and smashes this great big island, we've looked at that, and then from there the king of all the world emerges. Well, that was well known. What Satan didn't know was how the father and the son had planned to do this. 
He knew he would come and be king, but not how he would become king. That was limited. Satan knew that if you were going to rule the world, you would require possibly three things. You would require economic power. With, ec with economic power, with, with great wealth, you can meet needs of people and all the people love you. Uh, even our parliament and government knows that, doesn't it? We get near an election and we get more money in our pocket and we think, oh, they're a good lot, we'll, we'll, we'll vote for them because we've got more money. And we're a bit fickle, really. Uh, but all people are fickle, don't worry about that. Um, so there has to be economic power for everyone to acknowledge you and want to follow you and want you to be king. There had to be a religious power. Uh, religion now, as then really, is a powerful force in the world. And there had to be political power. You had to be able to exercise this power. So he would tempt Jesus then in these three areas, economics, religion, and politics. Could he extract from this Jesus an inappropriate response to any of these temptations. If he could, he would have sinned, and sin would have led to death, and it would have led to our death. So he had to respond appropriately to everything that Satan came and tempted him with. He could not afford an unholy response. Let's look then at these temptations. First, Satan's economic temptation. See the stones, he says, turn them into bread. That wasn't to feed himself. The idea that he was putting forth, listen, you have the miraculous power to turn every stone that's here into bread. Therefore, if you did that, you feed the whole world. Using your miraculous powers, Lord, you could just do this and then the whole world would follow you. You would be popular with everyone. The economic power. Then this religious temptation. He said, go, see the pinnacle of the temple. Throw yourself off the pinnacle. Angels will come and they will lift you up. That's said in scripture already. That will prove to uh, all the people, the religious people, that you have God's approval and the religious hierarchy will no doubt support you completely. And you will have that religious power in the world which is strong and influential over many people. Hmm. Jesus was not looking for the support of institutional religion for one minute course it was symbolized by the temple that's why he took him to that it was the symbol of power he knew that he was greater it says than the temple see this temple he says I'm greater than the temple he wasn't dependent on that or what it represented or religious power and authority Satan's political temptation this is the third one Satan offered Jesus all the kingdom of the world and their splendour in exchange for his soul. Really? Does it say that? Well, he said, I just want you to worship me. That would have been giving his soul to him. All this, he said, I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. This final temptation 
it sort of represented what all the people were expecting of the Messiah that came. He would be someone like David who would come and deal with the oppressive Roman occupation. That's what they wanted and that's what Satan was offering Jesus, this political power to, to do that very same thing. <laughs> it will fit into the hopes of the people. But you see, Jesus knew God's ways. We must know God's ways to live a holy life. When we know his ways, we will always respond appropriately. Whatever, whatever Satan was offering Jesus, he wasn't tempted. <laughs> it says it was the temptation. But in a way, it was no real temptation because in his heart, he always knew what God would do. He, would, he knew always the appropriate response. He knew what God wanted. And so when this came to him, he would only ever respond with the appropriateness that was expected of him. And he did. He answers everyone. Of course, in the last one, he tells him to be gone. This is nonsense. God's ways of making Jesus the king of the whole world was not by domination or force. It was by serving, suffering and dying. Mm. Have you discovered that in your life? Victory doesn't come from domination and force. Even if you did get something through domination and force, you would know it was wrong. So in winning that way, you lose anyway. There is no win that way. We, we rule over things through suffering and serving and dying. I always come back to this, don't I? Bring you back to this miserable point. But it's not. It's a point that brings us into victory. And it always will, because it is the way that God has ordained that things should happen. And we know it's the response. And when someone hits you across one side of the face, of course, the natural response is to strike back. But we know that God's response is to turn the other cheek. We know that. So to be holy is simply to respond the way that God has asked us to respond. But if you see an injustice, you must respond in the same way. So Jesus didn't turn the other cheek when he saw all the money changes in the temple. He said to his guys, come on, we're empty in this place. I thought about that the other day. I thought he couldn't have done this on his own. And so they were, they were up for it, these young men. Okay. And Jesus gave them the okay. So they were in there tipping and breaking and driving people out. And it, it was the appropriate response, you see. He was being perfectly holy when he did this. The appropriate response. And then other times he said not a word. He let them slap him across the face and pull his beard and spit on him. And he did nothing, you see. He always knew what the appropriate response was. Jesus showed us how to live our lives through the Gospels. This is the point of this whole course. As we look at the Gospels, we see Christ. We see the different traditions, the different characteristics of this Christ. And instead of just uh, following an, a narrow stream of what we're taught, 
as we look deeper into the Gospels, we see something a lot broader. We see something then of what this holiness church were all about. Doing the right thing is the most important thing to the Christians. Responding appropriately in every situation is far more important, they would have said, than anything else. More important than any of the charismatic streams or, uh, you know, the different streams. The most important stream is that we live holy lives. We know the life of Christ and we respond appropriately. He lived by example, but more than his example, he accompanied it all with preaching and teaching. All the parables, everything that he said, and of course he preached many times. He said, I must go, he said, and visit all the villages and preach that the kingdom of God is nigh. He was preaching, preaching, preaching all the time. People won't become holy if they don't listen to the word of God being preached. I mean, I understand you can read and read or listen to, you know, there's lots of material to listen to, but we must listen to it. We must read, otherwise we don't understand how to be holy. He must be talking to us all the time and refining our lives. So both are necessary. Looking at the example and hearing his teaching. The heart of his teaching is summed up in one word. We know this. It's love. The heart of his teaching was probably the Sermon on the Mount, and the heart of the Sermon on the Mount is that we, we love one another. The Pharisees were into holiness, weren't they? They wanted people to be righteous and live righteous life. That's why they had all the laws plus to cause people to live holy lives. They were trying to control the people, I understand that. The Pharisees' legalistic teaching could never, though, produce holiness. It's not possible. Only a life motivated by love can produce holiness within it. Matthew 5 and 20, this might make more sense now. It says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Hmm. He said they are righteous, but they're righteous with an external righteousness. It's all showy. It's not in their heart. It's what they, they're, they're presenting all the time. It's a righteousness that's false. It's not real. He said your righteousness must surpass that. In other words, your righteousness was, must flow from the heart. And it wouldn't take much to surpass theirs. Because theirs was an external righteousness. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and what would happen to them if it was false? You will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven, he said. Their brand of righteousness kept them out of the kingdom. Jesus said, you, if, you, if you listen to my teaching, you'd know who I was, because you're not. They weren't even in the kingdom. A righteousness that comes by God's grace and not the law was required. 
a righteousness that comes by grace. Another word, it is what God does within our hearts and lives, making us righteous, holy, virtuous. God's righteousness points to an inner life, as it were, a transformed heart that builds deeply ingrained habits of virtue, not an outward show of right and wrong. If we develop these habits, we will always have a spiritual moral resource to respond when faced with temptation. When something comes at you, if it isn't in there, you can't respond to it. This virtue I'm talking about, this holiness, it's ingrained into us. We train ourselves in righteousness. Paul says a similar thing in Hebrews, doesn't it? About training ourselves in the word of God so we can discern what's right and what's wrong. Without training, we cannot even discern what's right and wrong. These temptations that came to Jesus, they all sounded a bit plausible, didn't they? Many another person might have fallen for any of those. How to become famous how to be popular, how, 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 how. And sometimes we look at some churches, you know, mega churches with these uh, people who we look at them and we think, mm, I'm not here to judge anyone, but are you pursuing the right thing? We have to look. Jesus always said the right thing. He always did the right thing. This is purity of heart. This is the, the virtuous life. What I do now at the end of, uh, when I've finished this uh, presentation, I think about some figures that I've read about um, and uh, share with you my uh, people who have helped me think about this. So uh, I've, got, I've got some real ancient guys here, okay, uh, maybe because there was a period in church history when this was really important, it was visited to the church, and, and I'm sure we will need this visitation again sometime. As, as the church moves away from a truth, the Spirit of God has to move and bring us into it. So these are the notable figures that I want to bring to you. The first is Thomas Akempis. That might be a strange name to you, or you might know about it. He lived between 1379 and 1471, so he had a rich old life, didn't he? Nearly 100 years. He was an ordained priest in the Netherlands. He was a best-known member of a renewal movement. So they even had renewal movements then. They had lost a truth, you see, and so the Spirit of God, just like he came with a charismatic renewal, he came with a holiness renewal at that time, and they formed an order called the Brothers and Sisters of the Common Life. Now, lovely. He distilled this holiness teaching of the movement in his book, The Imitation of Christ. He said, oh, yeah. I remember hearing about that book. You might have even read it. Excluding the Bible, it was the most widely read book in Western Christianity at that time and after. Very popular. The Imitation of Christ. It's only a small book. It's worth reading because it's not a great tome that you'll get lost in. A little bit old-fashioned in its writing, although you might get a modern... Uh, you know, uh, version of that. 
but just wonderful. The whole thing about this living this holy life and how God requires it, it was a renewal, you see. So they probably, the churches that gathered around or the people that gathered around, this was their stream. Other things were left out, but this was their stream, maybe for a couple of hundred years, uh, discarded by others, uh, seen as eccentric or over the top, really. Another person that influenced me quite a lot was a man called Richard Baxter. He was from uh, 1615 to 1691. Again, he lived a good old time. He was an ordained Anglican minister. He allied himself, though, much with the Puritans of that time. So Anglican-Puritan mix here. He, he saw the value of this pure, holy life, although lots of Anglicans at the time didn't really appreciate that. Okay, uh, He preached and large crowds came. He went to very uh, desperate areas and his ministry just affected people powerfully. It's well worth uh, reading some of his stuff. Of his 2,000 writings, not all books, The Saint's Everlasting Rest was a very famous book. It was one most widely read books in the 17th century. And another guy who's been uh, gone a long time, who's influenced me uh, in this way of thinking, my third choice, is John Wesley. Uh, it's a name we all know. We might not be so familiar with the other two. He poured his life into the service of God. And it was very strict. He saw something of this need for holy living. And we know that um, he wasn't the founder of the Methodist Church. In fact, he was an Anglican minister all his life. But after him, they formed this movement called the Methodists and it, because it was based on method. Uh, and what it would have, it have these schools where uh, groups met together, classes, I think he called them, and he would be very strict, you know, about tithing, about fasting, about praying, all those virtues, and, and you had to meet and confess that you had done this and repent if you hadn't, and if you didn't want to or you couldn't, you'd be thrown out of the class. It was strict, but based on method, you see, it had a lot of method behind it. A powerful preacher. He travelled a quarter of a million miles. That's not far today, but if you're doing it on a horse, it is a long, long way. And he preached something like 40,000 sermons. That is a lot of sermons to preach. You're preaching three or four times a day, every day without shadow of a doubt, to, to get through 40,000. He preached for about 60 to 70 years, so he put in a good old stint there, uh, friend. Some say that um, the revival that was uh, at the centre uh, possibly could have happened in England. Um, the revival that came at his time averted the, the, um, uh, the rebellion, the revolt that was happening in France. So. France was going through a revolution, but his preaching and uh, how God moved upon him, and uh, there was others around him, obviously, Whitfield, Wesley, and so many others, uh, averted um, a possible um, revolution. Perhaps you can think, if I pursue this holiness thing, how can I, would it be possible I made mistakes? Well, mistakes can happen. 
If we turn our attention of holiness away from the heart of a person, which you cannot see into, and you look at the externals, you will become very judgmental. You will say, you're wearing the wrong clothes. You shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't be doing this. You shouldn't, you shouldn't, you shouldn't. But it's all external, you see. And that's the danger if we pursue this holiness stuff too much in the wrong direction. We become very judgmental of others. Always remember that holiness is a matter of the heart. heart. So even if sometimes people are not doing things always right on the outside, we don't know what's going on in the heart and they could be a whole lot further along the road than we realise. Another danger is, I hope I can say this right, Pelagianism. Have I said that right? Can any student correct me on that one? P-E-L-A-G-I-O-N-I-S-M. P-E-L-A-G-I-O-N-I-S-M. It's, a, it's a tempting to attain righteousness by the means of our own works, basically. Uh, attempting to attain righteousness by the means of our own works. There isn't anything you can do to become righteous. God has assigned, assigned everyone who puts faith in Christ as righteous. You are righteous in his sight. It was something that was assigned to you through faith in Christ alone. Salvation then isn't that we become righteous because we are righteous. He puts us on the path of discipleship where we grow in grace. So even if he puts you on the path and you don't take one step, you're still considered in his sight as a righteous person. See, we have to be careful. We're not judging people. Um, is that person saved? You haven't got a clue, really. They might not manifest much about salvation, but if God's attributed righteousness to them, then they're righteous. On this path, we learn to follow in his steps. A third problem could be perfectionism. In order to know who is perfect and who is not, we need an external criterion by which we can judge others. I'm a better Christian than you? Well, how are you going to judge that? Only by externals. That means <laughs> nothing. And so that's what perfectionism is. It's, it's pressing on, but the only way we can judge perfection is by the externals, and that is not a judgment at all. If we go down that route, we will become rigid and condemning and judging of others. So we mustn't do that. The impulse to be perfect is not a bad thing. We should want that. But no matter how perfect we get, there'll always be room for a bit more growth, you see. So we can never be perfect. Paul sums this up in Philippians 3, 12 to 15. It says, not that I've already obtained all this or I've already been made perfect. He says that. I'm not saying I've been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, 
But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I like this last bit he adds. All of us who are mature should take such a view as this. So he says, I'm mature as a Christian, but I will never say I'm perfect. In fact, I'm not, I'm not pursuing perfection. I just want to press on because I know there's room for me to press on. That's, that's good enough for Paul. It's, it's good enough for me. How might we practice this holiness tradition? If you see a problem in your life, don't try and tackle it. You go, hang on, what do you mean? No, no, you'll not win. You'll not tackle it head on. That's not the way to win over a problem in your life. You see, you have to be trained in something. You train yourself in this Christian life and then a problem that might come to you, as you train yourself, you overcome the problem. You build spiritual resources within yourself so that you overcome the problem. If you struggle with pride, well, just learn to serve. Don't tackle pride, you won't win. But start serving, build a resource, and in the end, through that service, pride will get smashed in your own life. Maybe you're, you're not a person who has great hope, you're fearful of things. Well, learn to meditate and to pray more and build up a resource. And through prayer and meditation, you'll become full of hope. You can't challenge hope head on or the lack of it. If we want faith, we must learn to be worshippers of God and faith will develop within our hearts. In life, it's good if you can invite someone to journey with you in this life. Companions or mentors. Mm, not sure, sure of the term mentor. Don't know. It, it, it puts a pressure on someone. It, just, just find someone who's passionate about Jesus and walk with them. And then as you walk together, be prepared to listen to one another. If he thinks you're overdoing it, or she, they need to tell you, you need to calm down a bit because your pursuit of something can you know, ruin you. Or if you're a bit sluggish and lazy, they should be friends good enough to say, come on, off your butt, let's go. Let's move on a little bit deeper, let's get deeper. Well, if you stumble and fall in this life of holiness, don't lay on the ground forever moaning. Just get up quick. No one who ever falls down lays there, does he? He jumps up as quick as he can. It's embarrassing to be on the floor. So we will fall, though. We will stumble and fall. But just get up. Keep going. Keep going. Like Paul says, I press on. I press on. I don't get it right every time. But I press on. Stumbling is part of growing. And mistakes and failures teach us the true way of life. That brings that session to the close. Um, hope you've enjoyed the idea of thinking, yes, I want to pursue holiness. I want that to be one of the streams of my life, one of the traditions that I wish I knew more about. But I won't overdo it. I'll just press on in.
day after day after day. Okay, welcome back. Well, we've looked uh, a lot at the holiness tradition. We're going to move on now and do the second one that I said I promised you we would look at the charismatic tradition. This is about life in the spirit. The holiness tradition, it, it probably centers and focuses on um, our being a Christian. The charismatic tradition is more about what we do. Holiness is who we are, and the charismatic is what we do as Christians. Both of these are really healthy if they're both together. You don't want to be overly charismatic without being uh, a good Christian, and you just don't want to be a good Christian without appreciating the power of the Holy Spirit to work with you. The charismatic stream focuses on empowering charisma. That's a word I'll use quite a lot this evening. Charisma. The gift, that is, of the Holy Spirit. That's charisma. The gifts of the Spirit. The Spirit-empowered way of living, it addresses the deep yearnings for the immediacy of God's presence. Charismatics just want to see God manifesting himself all the time. Healing people, speaking to people, just constantly they say, like, God said this to me and God said that to me every day, every day. It's, it's about the immediacy, the presence of God all the time in their lives. Let's look at Jesus as an example of uh, a charismatic Christian. Jesus lived and moved in the power of the Spirit. That's clear. Let's go first to where he was baptised in water. It's in Luke 3 and 22 we read this. It says, The Holy Spirit, when he went into the water, descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son whom I loved. With you I am well pleased. Can there be anything more charismatic than that? My Lord! I mean, birds landing on your head, voices coming from heaven. What a charismatic baptism. You think, oh, mine was quite dull, really, uh, quite boring in comparison. So he starts off with a real charismatic bang in his life. God speaks. Directly on the heels of this charismatic event that... Uh, the Holy Spirit and the Spirit coming on him and all these things. It says in Luke 4 and 1, Jesus, and he uses this term, full of the Spirit, he returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the desert. We're getting the hang of this, aren't we? He's full of the Spirit and he's led by the Spirit. So the author is very clear that what is happening now in the life of Jesus has everything to do with the Holy Spirit, this charismata. After the temptation encounters, it says this in Luke 4 and 14, Jesus returned to Galilee, how? In the power of the Spirit. So now, um, this refrain about Jesus echoes all the way through his ministry. Full of the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit, and in the power of the Spirit. This is how it started, and this is how the next three years of his life will continue 
From page to page, as we read in the Gospels, we see this manifestation of the Spirit. Now, if that's all you have eyes for, and you're of this tradition, that's all you see. You don't see everything else I've been talking about, you know, reflecting on his Father and looking and listening to him, or this life of holiness that he lived, always knowing to do the All you see is the power, the charismata, the things of the Spirit. Now we need to see it and we need to see all these other things. That's the purpose of this module. Jesus moved among people constantly exercising spiritual charisma with ease and assurance. He just did it. It came simple to him. What is this spiritual charisma? Can I give you another definition? just so we don't get lost and we're all talking about the same thing. Spiritual charisma, a divinely inspired spiritual gift that God bestows upon individuals. A divinely inspired spiritual gift that God bestows upon individuals for the good of the community of faith and the, and the advancement of the kingdom of God upon the earth. If you can exercise or you do exercise the spiritual gift, it is not for you. It is for the body of Christians that you are part of, the family that God has put you in. And it's also for the extension of the kingdom in the earth. That's the purpose of them. Jesus then is our example of one who exercised these spiritual gifts. And he's not short of any. We seem to maybe have one or two of them and we're quite strong in them and we could be quite weak in something else. But he seemed to be free to exercise it as the, Spirit, as the Word of God says, he was filled without measure. So it just flowed so naturally through him. The first one I want to look at is uh, the charisma of wisdom very wise speaker. People listened to his teaching. It says they were amazed at his teaching. More than once it says they were amazed at his teaching. Uh, he, moved, he moved them. The anointing of the Spirit on him affected them deeply. They just sat in awe. They never heard anything like this. No one ever speaks like this man. Just, they were amazed. It says in Mark 1 and 22, the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. His life, when he spoke, his life entered into the listeners. It was so real. They could identify. The impact that it made transformed people's life. That was the anointing. The anointing, the charisma that was upon him. He had the charisma of discernment as well. We call it the gift of discernment. He used it frequently. John uh, 2 and 25 says this, He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. It's a bit scary, isn't it? that he could stand in front of you. I don't think he probably knew everything of everyone that he ever stood in front of. That's not what the Holy Spirit would do. But if it was 
to the man's advantage and to the kingdom's advantage, he would have known exactly if that man was telling the truth or not telling the truth or where he was coming from. He had this tremendous ability to discern. Think of the rich young man who came to him and he, he it says he loved him and yet he discerned something about him. He said, I've kept the law, I've, I've done all these things. And without a question, he, and I don't think it ever met him before, he says, all that money you have, go give it to the poor. How discerning. He never told him he had, I'm sure he was dressed, you know, appropriately that he wasn't poor. But he knew, you see, he could discern things. Remember when the paralytic man was brought and uh, they ripped the roof off and, and dropped him down. Jesus did something that really offended everyone. He forgave the man's sins, remember? And he said, take up your mat and go home. He said this angered the teachers. The teachers were there to check him out, so they were listening carefully to every word he said. What makes Jesus say these things, they would have said to themselves. Does he think he can forgive sin? Mark 2 and 8 says, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. That'd be a great gift to have, wouldn't it? I mean, but you would need to be in a place where you exercised authority or you needed to do it. You wouldn't just dole out this to anyone and everyone. When we need a particular gift, the Holy Spirit within us can operate through us. The gifts of the Spirit are the manifestation of the Spirit within. When people talk about, I have the gift of this or the gift of that, I don't like that. I think they have the gift of the Holy Spirit. In, in the book of Acts, it says they didn't receive the gift of tongues. It never says that in the book of Acts. It says they received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And with the Holy Spirit came the ability and the expectation to speak in tongues. And so to say, I have a gift of prophecy, well, only when the Holy Spirit chooses to exercise the gift of prophecy through me. So I wouldn't call myself a prophet, although I might prophesy uh, in that sense. This discernment was the evidence of the Spirit's empowering life. Hmm. We can only do God's work with the power of the Spirit. Uh, if we haven't got the power of the Spirit, then it's our own natural power and strength we do things in. And really, is that acceptable to God? Only the work that he does through us by his spirit is acceptable to him, really. So as Christians, we need that empowerment. The charisma of miracles, or the gift of miracles. Quite a number of those. The miraculous catch of fish, remember. The multiplying of the loaves and the fishes. The turning water into wine. The cursing of the fig tree. Jesus walking on water supernatural things. Why? For the extension of the kingdom, to establish the kingdom, to teach people, never for his own purposes, but for the building up of the kingdom of God. The charisma of deliverance or the gift of deliverance. He would expel demons. If people had evil spirits within them, he would confront them and cast them out. Jesus would discern evil spirits. They were controlling people and simply command them to leave. He would know by discernment the name of the spirit. If it was, there was a spirit that was throwing the boy into the fire, remember, he was manifesting having fits and he called it 
a deaf and dumb spirit. I don't know if I would have jumped to that conclusion. It was a, well, it wasn't a conclusion. It was a discerning of the spirit. And so he was able to name that spirit and command it to go. The charisma of healing, or the gift of healing, by far the most prominent spiritual gift that we see Jesus ministering in. He heals the centurion's servant. He heals the paralytic. He raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. He heals the man who is born blind. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. He heals two blind men. He heals the mute demonic. He heals the man with a withered hand. Many, many miracles of healing. The list is quite endless. And more than once it says great crowds came to him. Great crowds. And he healed them all. Every one of them. Whether it was a one-on-one -on -one thing or whether it was simply him walking through and they just got healed because they were in his presence. What is exciting about this ministry of Jesus with his followers, this, what he had, was transferred to the disciples that were with him. We know it was transferred to the, to the twelve uh, that the apostles, he calls them to him and he, he confers it upon them and he sends them out as the twelve. But then one day he feels the impress of the Spirit. He knows what his father wants and so he sends them out. Seventy-two of them, some Bibles say seventy or seventy-two. He commissions them, he tells them to go ahead into the villages and into the towns and the thing he tells them to do is not preach, he tells them to heal the sick. Heal the sick. And if these people are interested, then preach the gospel to them. The gospel of the kingdom. Not the gospel of Christ dying on the cross, but the kingdom of God. He was so excited. Ordinary people, ordinary disciples, healing the sick. They returned with this astonishing news. Well... Jesus wasn't astonished. He knew exactly what was going on. They were astonished. It says in Luke 10, 17 and 21, they come back and they say, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. How surprised they were. They were walking in the power of the Spirit of God, manifesting the charisma. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I believe that was before the world. Uh, was uh, inhabited by humans. I believe he saw Satan fall. I think he's talking of something in history when he said, I saw Satan fall, because Satan was cast out. He said, I saw him fall. I saw him fall into this earth. I've seen him take dominion in this earth. I think that's what he was driving at. He said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. But he said, listen, I've given you authority to go out into this world where he thinks he's sovereign and Lord. I have given you authority, he says, to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. I like this bit. And nothing will harm you. Nothing will harm you. I'll protect you, he says. At that time, it says, Jesus, full of joy, through the Holy Spirit, says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned, and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. 
See, this is really important for us. We too can operate in this. We might have thought, well, I could operate in this prayer life. I could operate in this holiness life. But I don't know if I can operate in this charisma life because that's, that's God. No, he says, no, it's all the life that I manifest, all the different shades of it. It's yours. It's yours to follow in my footsteps. This expression, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, it literally means exalted. It means elation, rapturous emotion. Well, hang on, Phil. We can't have Jesus having rapturous emotion. Uh, another word of interpreting that is he leapt for joy. So excited. Leaping. Oh, praise God. This, this, what the Father sent me to do, he's now manifesting it through all of those that will follow me. Jesus was leaping for joy in the Spirit. In the Spirit. He leapt in the Spirit, it says. For now it was clear to him and others that the power ministry of the promised Holy Spirit was transferred to ordinary disciples. God derives great pleasure in working through us and with us. It's not for him. It can't be for him because he's so loving. He creates this world and everything, not for himself. He creates it for who he creates and puts in it. Isn't that wonderful? All these things, it's for you. The word of God says we are his treasured possession. He says everything in the world is mine. Everything and every person in the world is mine and you are my treasured possession. Of all the people, we are his treasured possession. And he wants to work in us and through us and manifest his life, his power through us. When Jesus was teaching at the Last Supper, he, he said this about the Holy Spirit. He said he has come to be your advocate, your representative in difficult situations, the one who will speak up for you or tell you what to say. Just as a, a good barrister would tell you what to say, tell you what not to say. He is your helper, he said. He's your comforter. He's your strengthener. He'll be your teacher and he will guide you into all truth. We just have to learn to live with him, this person of the Spirit. For those, for those disciples long ago, Jesus leaving must have been a very sad thing. Just to have lived with him for those years, to, to have received that fantastic thing, to be in his presence constantly, day and night, day and night, apart from when he sent you out to do the stuff. Just so wonderful. But he must go. He says to them, it's necessary I go so that the Spirit can come. It says in John 16 and 17, but I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counsellor will not come to you, but if I go, I'll send him to you. And on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, remember in John 7, 37 and 39, he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, streams of living water will flow from within him. But this... He meant the Spirit, 
whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not been glorified. The fullness of the Spirit has come, because Jesus has died. He's risen again, he's gone back to heaven, and the Spirit is now amongst us. The fullness of the Spirit is the promise of God. Be ye, keep being filled with the Spirit. I don't know if it drains away or it disappears or evaporates, I don't know. But we can be so full of it one minute and then void of it the next. Whether we'll ever operate with the same unction or power as Christ, I very much doubt it. He was full without measure. But we must, as in holiness, press on. We must press on with this as well. We must put ourselves in the place where it can start to manifest. I've got my feet firmly in the charismatic stream, I must admit, when I look at all these traditions. Um, brought up in a Pentecostal church, where else would I be? Uh, thought we had the truth and everyone else was slightly wrong. See, I speak from experience. But of course I know that's not true. I thank God for the stream I'm in. And of course growing up, only hearing these sorts of sermons, not hearing the others, my understanding was quite narrow. And then the books I would buy and the books I would read would be these books as well. Never read Thomas Akempis when I was 20 years old, Pentecostal. I wouldn't have read that then. But there are many, many who have written who we can gain vast experience from. Some of the authors that have blessed me. Obviously, the Apostle Paul is the first one. Francis of Assisi. George Fox. William Seymour. Evan Roberts, Amy Semple McPherson, Catherine Coleman, Dimo Shakarian, Derek Prince, Dennis Bennett, Oral Roberts, John Wimber, David Yonggi Chu. I mean, it goes on and on and on and on. As in all these streams, there are many writers, many writers though in the charismatic stream. And I'm talking, all of these passed away. All of these people that I've mentioned. And there are more coming through all the time. Good to read charismatic authors, but good to read other stuff as well so we get this broader perspective. My three choices, as I do at the end of each one of these. Number one, the Apostle Paul. Great charismatic person. He's the finest model in scriptures of someone whose feet are firmly in the charismatic stream. And yet he's so broad in his understanding. His revelation of everything is so wonderful. He is amazingly balanced in the way that he does things. He has rational, objective understanding of things and mystical anointings as well at the same time. Very subjective, the way that he thinks and does things. He could boldly declare, I speak in tongues more than you all, while at the same time confess that without love, we're only clanging gongs and cymbals. Isn't that brilliant? Wonderful balance in his life. He gives most carefully reasoned theological treaties in Romans and the first practical teaching of spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians. Just holds them both together balances them up 
you know. So if you're unbalanced, charismatic, you know, just, ooh, tip it this way a bit. But if you're the other way, just allow the charismatic to, to flow as well in your life. We need them all, all of these streams together. So he's my number one. Number two, Derek Prince. Uh, he lived from 1915 to 2003. He authored uh, 51 books. I think I've read them all. I'm uh, pretty sure. Anyhow, pretty sure. Uh, um, 600 audio teachings and 100 video teachings. He believed in the reality of spiritual forces operating in the world calling, causing illness and psychological problems. This great emphasis on deliverance and the power of the spirit to deal with the demonic that's causing such trouble in people's minds and in their bodies. His teaching for me, and I valued it, it was logical and well-structured. You might not always agree with everything he said, but you thoroughly understood when you read it because of his logical approach and you could see it step by step by step. So he comes number two. And number three, I knew him as originally Paul Yonggi Cho because he changed his name to David Yonggi Cho. Um, there were some unpleasant things at the end regarding financial things in his life and ministry, but that's no reason to not listen and look at all the rest of his life. What man hasn't made a mistake, um, you know, and been um, tempted, as we were looking at in that first section, to to sin. Um, he pastored Seoul Church in South Korea, uh, largest single Christian fellowship, 800,000 members. And when he tried to get rid of some of them and plant other churches, they wouldn't go. How do you handle, manage, administrate, minister to 800,000 people? He ministered in such a way that the people took the power of the Spirit and worked amongst their neighbours, bringing them to Christ. Thousands and thousands of groups of small Christians. Brilliant work, really, work of the Spirit. What are the perils of being charismatics now? Because charismatics need to listen to this. We get a bit overexcited with signs and wonders. Um, we see it as the only thing. <laughs> Nothing else exists. That's all we want, signs and wonders. Every week, without it, we're a rubbish church. No, 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 that's not true. We focus often on the gifts all the time and not on the giver of the gifts. It's just we want to see the manifestations and we're not really um, focusing on the Lord himself. Gifts are not an end in themselves. Of course, Jesus is the end. There's a danger of rejecting the rational and the intellectual, but God loves both mind and heart. What you think is important to God. We do not divorce the gifts from the fruit. If we do, we'll end up in a mess. It's important you live the life as well as you exercise these gifts. One thing about the charismatics, we were talking during the break, and I'm going to mention this now, they're highly speculative about end times. They get carried away about end time scenarios all the time. 
I don't know why. They just do. They just, I don't know why they, perhaps they want it all to come to an end. I mean, it is exciting, but it's just this same thing of wanting the Christian things that they look at to be exciting and dynamic all the time. There's a place for that, but only a place. Practicing the charismatic tradition. If you want to, work closely with those who already have experience. Because it is an experiential thing. The teaching is fairly simple and straightforward, but to, to walk with someone who's doing it, you, you catch it, you catch it from them. And the experience they have, the wisdom that they have is because of the experience. And you can learn so much. Follow your leaders if they're charismatic. You somehow, if you're charismatic, you have to live with a dissatisfaction because you're never satisfied. You pray for people, some get healed and some don't. You're happy for the ones that got healed, but the ones that didn't, you're dissatisfied. Or if you pray for someone for deliverance, some do, some don't. So it's very dissatisfying to be charismatic sometimes. You need to be prepared to step out all the time in faith and do stuff. You almost need this hard exterior, this really shell to keep going, to just keep going. Accept the fear and uncertainty of ministry. You see, moving in the things of the Spirit, we don't really know what we're doing. And because when God takes us deeper and deeper, we know even less what we're doing. And so most people tend to pull back because they want to be in charge. They want to know. They want to know the outcome of things. Well, if you're going to move in the charismatic, you can't know the outcome of things. You just, there's an uncertainty. Test your leadings with those that you trust. The Spirit told me to do this. Check it out, for heaven's sake. Check it out. You don't know. Take the wisdom of others. If the Spirit has asked you to do something, it won't go away. It'll be on your case until you do it. But check it out, please. Just talk to people. Talk to people who won't pour cold water on you and try to stop you, but let them talk it through with you, to reason it through together. Allow the Spirit to correct and refine you. I stepped into deliverance ministry knowing absolutely nothing. Do you think I made mistakes? Ooh, okay. Uh, because you make them and then you learn from them. That's the wisdom of it, isn't it? And, and you go, well, I won't do that one again. But, but you do that and, and that's what it's like with the charismatic. And be eager to exercise the gifts. If you're not eager, then you won't do it. It's as simple as that. If you're worried about praying for the sick or worried about stepping out into giving a prophecy or you know speaking in tongues or interpretation it won't happen you have to be bold uh, the spirit of god can put a bit of pressure on you but at the end of the day it's your choice he won't make you do any of those things so there we are the charismatic tradition lovely You've been listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching 
and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk where you can make a secure online donation to the ministry. You can also now follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. Arise Ministry, a living legacy.